We're looking at two different passages in the Sermon on the Mount today. One is um, a very known passage that, in my opinion, is very misunderstood, and that's the Golden Rule. And another is Jesus' command that we not only um, love enemies, but that we pray for them. And not only that we um, grow up in faith, but the command is actually that we be perfect. It's a very tricky command to understand because... How's that going for you? Being perfect. For me either, brother. I actually sinned against another presbyter, another pastor this week. Scheduled, that's a long story, but really got to practice what I preach about asking for his forgiveness and then just standing there while he explained to me how I had sinned against him. Um, Presbyterians do things regionally and, and nationally and well, anyway so I had a Presbyterian meeting this week in Washington D.C. and it was a very good meeting very encouraging what's going on in our denomination a number of new pastors coming in and, and I managed to uh, get to practice repentance with another pastor um, I don't know if this phrase love well is overused or if it's something that is on your mind I don't know if you're um, I don't know if what I'm about to say resonates with you, but something for me specifically that I want to be known for is loving well. And on a bad day, that can, that can push me to overextend myself and worry too much, over-worry, as Jesus and Paul and Peter would describe it. And yet, it's a good desire, right, to love well God and the neighbors that he has placed in our life. Perhaps my biggest beef with God on a regular basis is the neighbors that he's put in my life. Not you, fine people. You're all awesome. But, but some of the other ones. Um, and yet, the commands to love are very clear. That joke went over a little better than I was planning, which means maybe I should have left it out. Um, And the command to neighbor love comes up twice in in ways that I think are are similar in the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 and 7. is interesting not only because of how Jesus teaches it and how we misunderstand it, which I'll get to in just a minute. It's also interesting because what if we had an hour or so to list the things we wish God was more clear about? Let's just start with the dinosaurs. Let's start with what happens to people that have not heard the good news on all the islands, right? And we have answers to those questions, but they're not as precise as many of us would like. And that's, that's two. I think we could get to a hundred in about two minutes, right? And yet there are some things that Jesus was crystal clear about. And so the burden for us who are following him is to take seriously the questions that we want to research. Go ahead and, and you know, unpack whether Leviathan and Job was a dinosaur. Unpack the, the explanations of sharing the good news and what God says about election and things like that. And more importantly, we must pay attention to the things Jesus taught on directly. So here are all the questions that we wish he said more about or perhaps said things that we understood quicker about. And then there are the things that he taught very directly, very clearly, non-metaphorical commands. And we get to learn to follow those commands. Matthew chapter 7 and chapter 5 and then throughout the rest of the New Testament, we're commanded to love. Who? Everybody. Sounds tiring. Doesn't mean you don't have limits. 
It doesn't mean you're, you're always in the room with that person, tolerating their bad behavior. But it is unequivocally clear in metaphor, in direct teaching, and in lifestyle that our role as a follower of Christ is to love all of the neighbors we find ourselves in relationship with. When someone asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, what did he then do? He told the story of the Good Samaritan, which I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking today. I hope you know the story. It's beautiful. But if that's an answer to the question, who is my neighbor, it is both anyone in need and anyone you come into relationship with. A lot of kinds of love, right? Five love languages, very talked about book. I think it's perhaps more helpful for uh, friendship than spouses. I could be wrong about that. I do think the categories are good. Gifts, service, words, notes, touch. Giving and receiving are often different. Those are five kinds of love according to that book. Perhaps you know the Greek words for love. Eros, phileo, agape. This is where you think I'm going to define all those. I didn't research them very much this week and frankly can get them confused sometimes though I can read them and you can't, so take it easy. On, I'm kidding. We, we were colloquial about kinds of love, right? You need to practice a little tough love in that situation, meaning I know you care about that person, but perhaps you're enabling them a little bit. There are all these new terms too. Tiger mom, helicopter love, I don't even know. Are there other animals and or machinery that describe kinds of love? Sloth love. That's for the Sabbath, right? We move slow today. See, I, I can roll with your jokes. And the, the thing I love about the, the, the multiple kinds of love and the challenge of defining love, my definition is love seeks the good of the other. Both feeling and activity. That's what love is and does. It seeks the good of the other. What I like about the fact that culturally um, and mentally we have lots of definition is it reminds us that love is complex, which I'll I'll come back to in a few minutes. Last week, I talked in the middle of a sermon on the Lord's Prayer, which I believe is the most comforting part of the Bible because it summarizes the Bible, reminds us of God's fatherly care. At the end of the sermon of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, if you don't forgive, your Father won't forgive you. In my opinion, it's one of the most misunderstood parts of Jesus' teaching. I spent a lot of energy on this, and I'm going to repeat it because it works as a two-sided coin with Jesus' teachings on neighbor love. Forgiveness is only desiring the other's good. Forgiveness is not desiring pain for pain. So the person that hurt you, you think you haven't forgiven them because you're not reconciled relationally. If you long for their good, you have forgiven them. And then you're entering the wisdom question of reconciliation and neighbor love. At the same time, if you want them to be in physical pain because they caused you physical pain, that means you do not understand what Jesus did for you and that's dangerous. I hope that the Lord grants you the strength and the ability to forgive them. Now, a religious person will hear that teaching and think, Oh, so I'm good. I desire their good, so I have no other role. A follower of Jesus knows that they're never finished 
in this life learning to love well. How do I know that? Because Jesus said we pray even for those who are our enemies. It does not mean go into the unsafe room, literally or metaphorically, with that person. But it does mean the command of love exists for followers of Jesus. It doesn't come with a threat like the command on forgiveness does. Jesus is so merciful, getting our attention about the importance of forgiveness and then commanding us to love neighbors, including those that are our enemies. We're looking at two passages today. One is in Matthew chapter 7 and one is in Matthew chapter 5. The one in Matthew chapter 7 is known as the golden rule. Depending on what kind of Bible you have, it might be labeled that. Um, It is an understood passage, but I think a a misapplied passage culturally. Because the golden rule might be the most quoted part of the Bible, but only the first part of it. If you have uh, your Bible, look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 12, 13, and 14. And here's a, here's a question. I already alluded to it a little bit. As, we're going, as I read these verses, according to Jesus, is it easy to follow the golden rule? Hold that question in your mind. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Okay? Enter by the narrow gate... For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Looking at verses 13 and 14, did Jesus believe that this was a simple matter? No. If he had, he might have only said verse 12 and not verses 13. And 14. And so, while forgiveness, I think, is something that most followers of Jesus have already achieved while it's weighing on their heart, the other side of that coin is that we are called to love all the neighbors in our life, at least through prayer, if not more. From Jesus' teaching on the golden rule especially verses 13 and 14, I conclude that love is not intuitive. It's not simple. It's not easy. It's good. And it's worth it. And this is good news because you have been frustrated that you are not loved well. This is not the good news, but this is good news. You have been frustrated that you're not being loved well. Good news for you. It's not easy for that person, for that spouse, co-worker, child, parent, friend. It's not simple for them. Jesus said, this is a narrow way to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's not simple or intuitive. Here are the ways that we actually believe it's intuitive. We yell. Why are we yelling? Because it boiled over in us and we're yelling at our spouse or our friend or our child or our parent or our coworker or our dog because we think that they should know exactly how to treat us. This is me last Wednesday night. I wasn't yelling, but I was being very actively silent. Are you, there are a lot of active silent people in the congregation. 
What do we do when we're being actively silent? We're implying you should know how to love me. I'm not even going to tell you. I'm going to sit here and be mad. And those of you that are feeling a little convicted, I'm not kidding, that's me last Wednesday. And I was judging myself and sort of chuckling at it, so we didn't even talk about it a lot. We all knew what was going on. (laughs) Meaning all the people in my house. Uh, Another way that that we imply that it's intuitive is we internalize it. Internalizing it is different than silence. Silent, for me, silence is an active thing, right? Internalizing it is you thinking that you don't deserve to be loved, so you squash it. How's that going for you? For some of you, you're actually capable of squashing it. You're capable of squashing your need to be loved by the other neighbors in your life. My contention is that it's eventually going to leak out of your elbows. Stole that phrase from my wife. She's very good with words. Here's another way that we imply that love is intuitive. We use the word just all the time. Would you just do this as though it's not a big ask to ask someone to relate to us differently? Preached a whole sermon on this for New Year's. Now I feel like a crazy person because everybody uses the word all the time. They just say the word just all the time. 80% of the time it's unhelpful. Maybe 90%. Two years ago for New Year's, I preached the word nor- on the word normal because most of the normal is an important word. Peter, it's a good email. We want our body temperature to be normal. See, I read the emails you people send. But we use the word normal oftentimes to judge people in traffic, right? A normal driver would never do that. Or to judge ourselves. A normal person would not be so upset by the work email. What are we implying when we do that? That love is simple. That love is intuitive. That learning how to relate to people shouldn't be this difficult. If that was true, Jesus not only wouldn't have taught the golden rule the way he did, he wouldn't also teach in Matthew 5. Verses 43 through 48. We're trying to look at the Sermon on the Mount in about ten sermons. There are a lot of passages. I'm taking more than one some weeks and connecting it to other parts of the Scripture. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just And on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So while I believe most people who struggle with the idea of forgiveness have actually forgiven, there is still the call to love. Every neighbor we find ourselves in relationship with. And it's not intuitive. We don't have verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7 about how narrow the way of love is. You heard about the words always and never, how you shouldn't use them in intimate relationships. That's such an oversimplifying way to say it, though they are pretty tricky words. Always avoid saying always and never. Never say always and never, right? Here's the other side of it. When your friend or your coworker or your spouse or your parent or child uses the word, it means that they feel what they're asking you to do very deeply. It feels to them like you always or you never. And you're like, but it's such a small thing. Listen, small things matter. They're representative of bigger things. 
So if it's that you never finish putting the dishes away, you're like, they're just dishes. See how that word comes in? Just. They're dishes that represent the flow of the household and your respect for the other person's role and all that kind of stuff. Always and never are another way that we imply that it's intuitive. Listen, you're not simple to love. It's not that simple. You are complicated. You're made in God's image. You are a product of genetics and mentoring. You have different gifts than the other people in the room. You have different affections than the other people in the room. You have different circumstances than the other people in the room. It's not simple to love you. Except for like one or two of you. It's very simple. And that's even more confusing because everybody else is complicated to love. I'm serious. If it's actually simple to love you, the friend or the parent or the spouse is so confused because everybody else is hard to love. Or at least complicated to love. When Rachel and I were engaged, we were encouraged to ask uh, some older people that we respect about marriage and love. And my mom, who has been married a number of times, I asked her about this and she said, Matthew, I know that this is coming from me, which is her way of acknowledging that she has not always been very successful in relationship. Though, it's also a lot of tragedy before you get a wrong picture of my mom. And she said, I know it's me who's about to say this to you. So she's owning it. You cannot expect... Rachel, to love you in a way you have not told her or asked her to do. I am 40 years old. I have mastered divinity. I've been married for over a decade. That is still difficult for me. (laughs) Our culture, which is in love with romance, though not love, is pressing you to believe that love is and should be intuitive and simple. And it's a lie. I kind of love that our culture is in love with romance, but I hate the backside of it, which implies to us that it's simple. It's not simple. It's not intuitive. I am way more scared of a good drama than a horror movie. And you're like, what in the world? That's the weirdest segue ever. I like scary movies. But you know what's scarier to me than a scary movie? I, Tanya. I cried twice. You need to know that about your pastor. I watched the movie about Tanya Harding. Yes, that Tanya. And I cried twice. And you know why? Is because what humans can do to other humans is way more scary to me than anything Stephen King can write. I'm not saying he's not scary. Stephen King fans, stay with me. I'm not saying he's not scary. That was unnecessary. I am saying humans' abilities to hurt humans way more scary to me. One of the other reasons it's difficult is because the people that we're in relationship with are constantly changing. Except for that one person who is spending all of their emotional and mental and spiritual and psychological energy into never changing. And that's hard too. It's a narrow way. That's chapter 7. Back to chapter 5. It's not only that love is not intuitive. The command includes enemies. You have enemies. This is so important. 
It's not cool to say, and we don't feel like we have enemies because they don't have swords, I hope. But you have people that are not for you. In all of my family units, so to speak, this is a summary, my genogram's crazy. There is a, a, someone at, at my generational place who's not speaking to the parents. And right now they're kind of iffy towards me because of the issues with the parents. They might turn on me. That's an enemy. Not because I don't love them and they don't love me, but that would be them treating me as an enemy. Do you have a relative that doesn't speak to you? In biblical language, and I don't want you to be more mad at them. I want you to know what to do about it according to Jesus. Pray for them. How often? I don't know. What a great question. I hope you've actually asked that question. You have people in the workplace that are not for you. One of the hardest places to practice neighbor love is in the job force because neighbor love is seeking the good of the other. Well, why would you do that? You might not get a promotion if you help them with their work because you're a follower of Jesus and that's what we do. God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. You might not receive a reward in this life for acting like a follower of Jesus. The alternative, I believe, hurts your soul. But it is not easy in the workplace, in family, in any any relationship of love that's going to last longer than six months and putting our best foot forward. Neighbor love is difficult, especially, I think, in the workforce. The command is to love our enemies. Which means Christians are not done with anyone. So what do we do with those who forgive us? What do followers of Jesus do? First, we forgive. If you wake up in the morning and you desire that that person be in pain for the pain they caused you, you give that to Jesus before you do anything else. You spiritually absorb what they did, leave their judgment to God, and long for their good. Then you pray for them. Did you catch that in chapter 5? I mean, it's a non-metaphorical command. What do we do? Pray for those who persecute you. Verse 44. How long? How often? Great questions. You and Jesus need to work that out. I'd ask a good friend that you can trust. You can come ask me. I'm Master Divinity. I'll clearly have a very precise answer for you. Or I'll say, why don't you tell me a little more about the relationship? How have you already prayed? What does your best friend think? Those seem like trite categories to you, but neighbor love involves wisdom. Not for forgiveness, we forgive very first, but for prayer and a consideration of reconciliation. I love this about Jesus' tone. When it came to forgiveness, he was incredibly harsh because of how dangerous it is to our soul. And with the command of love, he's gentle and encouraging. He recognizes that it's going to seem unfair to us, the unjust and the just alike. That's the reality. We still love and pray for our enemies. An even taller order in our lives an even heavier responsibility than forgiveness, in my opinion, is to learn to pray for our enemies. And when, because it's not cool. It sounds weird. We don't think we have enemies, but we do. It's such a freeing way. And if you just sit down or kneel or go to your room, close the door and pray for your enemies and you find that all you can do is spew anger, you sound like a psalmist. Good job. 
I'm totally serious. If you can't say kind words in prayer about an enemy, like by yourself, good job being honest with God. But the call of the with God life. Followers of Christ learn not only to forgive, but to love everyone. Maybe not be in the same room, literally or metaphorically, but to love everyone, to pray for them. And we are called to perfection. What does that mean? Well, there's a tension there, and it's good news. The tension is we're not ever going to be perfect. Sanctification is an ongoing thing. Sanctification is growing up into greater maturity of loving God and neighbor. You are continuing to be sanctified. I had lunch this week with Harvey Mojer. Some of you know Harvey, some of you do not. He is 90 years old and he fully believes that in the next couple of months, God will continue to make him into a better lover of God and neighbor. Those of you in his family know that sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't. But he firmly believes that. He's 90. Because it's a joy to have an explanation of both our heart for other people and the reality that sometimes we hurt through omission, sometimes on purpose. And we are being continually grown. And it's also good news because it reminds us that our need is full. Our need is a finished need to trust the one who is perfect. The word here is the same word that Jesus used on the cross as he died. Twice in verse 48, the word is telos, finished, perfected, entirely completed. That's the command, we can't do it, which reminds us that Jesus has done it for us. And in trusting him, we are saved today and eternally and into the new heavens and new earth. And we're grown up into better lovers of him and neighbor, which is both affections and activity. And it wasn't just Jesus who said this. His younger brother said the same thing in James chapter 1. After Jesus rises from the dead and James becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church, which was full of Jews who were following Jesus and Gentiles who were following Jesus. And he said, the command is perfection that you may be perfect and complete. And James knew that being perfect and complete is what we receive passively through a relationship with Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus commands us to love that's not intuitive or simple and then He empowers us because He's the one who lived the only perfect life. and then died for us, and then rose from the dead, that we might believe and come to believe more deeply that He loves us and is for us. That not only saves us into eternity and peace with Him, and then to a renewed heaven and earth, it gives us peace today and empowers us to love Him and neighbor today and tomorrow. How? How do I believe this? One way is to receive the sacraments of the body and the metaphorical blood of Jesus. The bread and the unfermented wine. Trusting Him with the command to do this. 
because He loves us and offered to us a sacrament where more is happening spiritually than we can tell. But we know that He's filling us with His Spirit. We know He's granting us strength. We know He's uniting us to each other and to Christians all across time and space. And we know that we leave more able, perhaps through an idol being removed, perhaps through something being revealed, perhaps internally in ways we cannot fully understand. We are being given strength through the sacrament. So here's the application. (laughs) Take the sacrament in just a moment.